Well, if you again you would uh, take out your Bible, let's turn to Genesis chapter 12. And we will today be reading uh, through verse or chapter 13 and verse 2. So Genesis 12:10 through 13 and verse 2. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Pay careful attention to the reading of it. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say, She's my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. This reading of your word, we pray now, God, that you would give us ears to hear as the word is preached. Pray that you be with this, your servant. Pray that what is said is, will be clear, that we can understand that your word is rightly divided, and that we can apply it into our lives in a way that gives you glory. Be with us, we pray, as we study this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the miseries of this life can often bring anxiety and vexation. The worries in our heart come with our suffering. Often it is the case that we suffer and then we begin to worry. We worry about the suffering we have. We worry about more suffering which may come. But Jesus invites us not to be anxious about the things in this world, and yet we do. In some cases, we worry daily. We worry about... What could might happen? That was very Ozarkian. I'm, I'm starting to fit in around here. So we worry. And some, and some will deal with their worry in various ways. Some will deal with their anxiety with bravado, outwardly putting on a brave face. Others will medicate their worries through legal means, others through, through illegal means. 
Well, the Christian, of course, knows we ought not to be anxious. We know what Jesus has said to us. We trust in the Lord. We have faith. And yet, we still find ourselves anxious and worried and fearful of man. Isn't that true? Are we not like the father in in Mark chapter 9, whose father had an unclean spirit, who cries out to Jesus and says this, I believe, help me with my unbelief. At the root of our anxiety, at the root of our fear, is unbelief. We are, in some sense, not trusting in the Lord. We believe the Lord, and yet we need help with that portion of our heart which is prone to wander and is prone to unbelief. Perhaps it is when we suffer in this life that we think, God left me. We think, God doesn't love me. It is in these times when we are filled with anxiety and fear also that we're prone, most prone, to fall into sin. When we fear man more than we fear God, we're prone to succumbing to the temptations of this present world. Perhaps we will do so in ways we had never considered before. And consider even Abram in our present text. Abram had received tremendous blessings from the Lord. He was promised from God many wonderful things. He had been led to the land the Lord had said He would show him. He believed God, but when he was faced with a test of his faith, Abram feared. Now, he was faced with the dangers of famine, You know, the lack of food, this is a very serious thing for him and for his household. But it gets worse as he travels to Egypt and he finds um, himself in a quandary, a quandary of his own making. Which which ultimately gets resolved in the most amazing way. Giving further reason to praise God and to give Him all the glory. And so now as we orient ourselves uh, to our text, we'll note a few things. Uh, we'll, no, we'll note this account of Abram's journey to Egypt is set between the promises which had been given at the beginning of chapter 12, uh, the five I will statements you'll find at the beginning of chapter 12, and then the acquisition of wealth which comes from his time in Egypt. So God always keeps his promises. He was going to bless Abram, and he does so in a very unexpected way. Really, almost despite Abram himself. So Abram journeys through the land. He sees the inheritance, as it were. You know, you, you, got, you almost get this idea as he's traveling through the land. He's seeing God is showing him, this is, this is what you're inheriting. Here it is. This is the land that I... I promised you. And he journeys toward the Negev, that is the southern part of the land. And it's here that we see this new challenge to God's promises. A famine. Now we've already seen two other alleged roadblocks to Abram's blessings. Remember the the barrenness of Sarai being one of those. And then the fact that the Canaanites were still in the land. So here's these roadblocks. Now there's a new roadblock coming. And that is a famine. In God's good providence, there was this famine in the land. 
And one could hardly expect to have offspring inheriting a land if one did not survive long enough to even have those offspring. In other words, if you starve to death before you even have any children. And so Abram figures something must be done. Abram and Sarai dying of hunger would not do. Now, a famine, of course, is a very serious situation, particularly in an arid environment such as the land of Canaan. Now, the reason for the famine is not given in the text, but it could, it could result from a number of different factors. A locust invasion, for one thing, uh, would decimate the crops, or an enemy siege, or a drought, any of those. Uh, there are others, of course, that could be, but those are the most common. We're not told where the uh, what starts the famine, we just, what it does tell us is this, the famine was very severe. It was a very severe famine. And so the case of a famine caused by drought, there are actually two places which would provide a stable agricultural environment in comparison to Canaan. Uh, first would be the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley of Mesopotamia. This is essentially where uh, Abram comes from. Or the Nile River Valley of Egypt. Those are the two places in that world you could go to. And of course, this explains why Abram goes south into Egypt. In fact, the rapid movement of the narrative leaves the reader with a sense that Abram walked right through the land and then out of the promised land and right into Egypt. And perhaps this is how we're intended to understand this. God had promised Abram great things, but now he's presented with this great danger, and he needed help. But you'll notice something about this, and that is that the scriptures don't criticize him for seeking relief. It doesn't say that he should have stayed there, that it was wrong for him to go to Egypt. In fact, as we'll see, God will use this occasion to actually bless Abram. Now why should he even leave the land? Now keep in mind a few things. First of all, Abram was himself a sojourner. He only recently had arrived in Canaan. And so he was a foreigner And unlike you and I, who have an immediate church family to lean into no matter where we go, we helped a few folks move this weekend. You experienced. No matter where you go in the world, you've got a church family. Abram didn't have that. This is the early days of these sorts of things. And so he didn't have the means for long-term food storage. He didn't have anybody that he could lean on. He had what he had. And thus Egypt would have been an appealing place to go because there was abundance of water for his family, his household, and all of his animals. Now verse 10 says that he went down to sojourn there. He went to sojourn there. So Abram did not intend on staying in Egypt permanently. He was to remain a foreigner in the land of Egypt. He was only going to be there for a short period of time. He had no plans to settle down. He simply wanted to go and wait out the famine. Now, we need to also understand that he goes there under great duress. He's under a lot of stress to have to do make this trip. And so we want to be careful that we don't think that there's error, some sort of great error in his simply going to Egypt. 
His folly, though, will come as he enters Egypt. And coming into this foreign land, Abram was confronted with a new fear. First he had the fear of the famine itself, but then a new fear comes about, a fear that is so great that he devises a ruse. His wife, you see, Sarai, was a very beautiful woman. And because of this, he was afraid. He was afraid that her beauty would attract the attention of very powerful men. The sort of men who would do him harm. And take her from him. Now every husband ought to think that his wife is beautiful. But the superlative in verse 14 suggests that she was indeed exceedingly so. Well, you might wonder how. Indeed, Sarai is 10 years younger than Abram, and we know that Abram was 75 years old when he went into the Promised Land, and so at this point, Sarai would be in her mid-60s. Now, don't stumble on this point, particularly some of the younger folks here. Understand that ancient people measured beauty very differently than modern people do. For one thing, the ancient people were not so obsessed with youth as we are today. Beauty in the ancient world was found in the eyes. It's also important to understand this was during the time, a period of time when human lives were progressively shortening, and so that the uh, the length of life hadn't quite bottomed out yet. Let's put it to put it more simply and bluntly. The Bible tells us that she was exceedingly beautiful. Matters not her age. She was exceedingly beautiful, and thus she was. She was a beautiful woman. We also know something else about Abram's fear, and that is this. Those fears were well-founded, weren't they? Because her beauty does attract the exact attention he doesn't want. Powerful men do notice his wife. Abram wasn't wrong. This was something to fear. But Abram's fear was not only that the men of Egypt would notice her, but that those powerful men will take him and kill him and then take her from him. He's afraid because he knows the Egyptians do not worship Yahweh as he does. They do not know the Lord, nor do they abide by the ethics of God. They were men of the world. They were brutal And so he intended to, well, tell half the truth. Look at verse 13. Abram says this, Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now the genius of this ruse, if we could call it genius, is that it is half the truth. Sarai, in fact, was his half-sister. They both had the same father. But again, this was only half the truth. Abram hoped that by presenting her only as his sister, that he might avoid any reference to her also being his wife. Now, again, remember, Abram's purpose was to survive this temporary stop in Egypt. If Sarai is presented as merely his sister and not his wife, then there wouldn't be any occasion for them to kill him and take her from him. But you must wonder, 
Did he really think that they weren't going to go take her anyway? I don't know what he thought. It does not appear that Abram is selling his wife to save his own skin. There are some commentators who think that's what's happening. I, I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think Abram is selling his wife. What he is doing is, in his own power, trying to save them both. But things don't work out quite like he had planned. And the folly of his plan is found in its consequences. Indeed, the lie does not save his life, but in so doing, he jeopardized his own future and that of his wife. Sarai was still taken by the Egyptians. The woman who was to be the mother of the promised seed was placed at grave risk. In addition to this, there were many others who suffered because of his deception. The Egyptians, who unknowingly brought guilt upon themselves. Which is to say... Abram's actions, though designed to protect God's promises, was not morally neutral. Best case scenario, Abram was doing what he thought was best to protect everyone involved. Was this the right thing to do? How do we evaluate this? How do we understand this? A few thoughts for us as we reason through this biblically. On the one hand, during this great famine, Abram could have chosen to go back to Haran or even back to Mesopotamia into the area of the Tigris and Euphrates, an area which was equally able to support him and his family in his time of need and a place that he would have been familiar with since this is where he had come from. But he does not do that. And I, I think we can deduce from this because he understood God's promises. God's promises were firmly rooted in his mind. This was not the direction of his inheritance. That would be going backwards. And so he wasn't going to do that. This may also have been his reason for fearing for his own life as he entered into Egypt. Abram understood well what was promised to him. He understood the worldwide impact of his family being made a great nation. In his mind, a lot was riding on him. And so he needed to survive. Beloved congregation, God's providences in our life do not preclude us from taking up matters ourselves. Just because we trust in God's sovereignty and His providence don't mean we just throw our hands up and say, well, God's just going to take care of us. I don't have to do anything. It doesn't preclude us from doing things. God works through means, and sometimes the means by which God works is through our own hands. The problem comes when we do things which overstep the boundaries which God has put forth in His Word. Abram wasn't doing anything wrong by going to Egypt. In fact, under the circumstances, knowing nothing else, this may have been the most sensible decision to make. But in seeking to be faithful to God, to ensure that God's promises remain intact, he used unlawful means, namely a sin of omission. But is this omission immediately to be understood as a lie? One could argue that he did in fact tell the truth, but in telling half truth is still less than the truth. Half the truth is only is still not the full truth. And this half truth ended up placing his wife into a treacherous situation where her virtue was threatened. 
Proverbs 12.22 states, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are His delight. We're not to lie. We're to be truthful and honest. And yet, verse 23 of Proverbs 12 says this, A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaim folly. Couldn't it be said that although Abram was a visitor to the land and custom would dictate hospitality to the outsider, that these were dangerous men who could very likely do him harm? Is it, could it be that telling only half the truth was the act of a prudent man? Do we owe the wicked the whole truth all the time? This is the wrestling that we have to do now, right? I said we're going to reason through this biblically. Consider the account of the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1, who do not reveal the whole truth regarding the sons who were born, who they were ordered to kill. They're not condemned. Or of, the, of those during World War II who hid Jews from the Nazis. They often had to tell half-truths in order to protect the life of innocent people. Isn't Abram simply trying to protect the innocent, namely himself, his wife, and his servants, by only telling half the truth? There are times which require the whole truth, and times which require the prudent to hide certain knowledge. So how do we evaluate this, right? How how do we live with this? seems perhaps that the sin of omission arises once Sarai is actually taken. Now truly the innocent are in danger. Her life is now in danger. Her virtue is in danger. It is at this point in which Abram need to come clean with the whole truth. It doesn't really seem that he does, but God ensures that the truth comes out. Things, we might say, did not go quite as Abram had planned. But isn't that the way things go for us, too? I mean, can't you relate to this, to some degree? There are times we find ourselves in difficult situations which seemingly have no way of escape. And when this happens, we are, as Calvin puts it, led astray into various circuitous paths. We struggle to follow the Lord because, because we look around and we see there, there's no way forward but sin. I could do nothing but sin. What do I do? Don't you find yourself in that position from time to time? Hopefully not every day. right? There are points of life where you I don't know what to do. It feels like if I go this way, I'm sinning. And if I go this way, I'm sinning. What do I do, Lord? This is where our faith is tested often. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You see, beloved congregation, the only choices which we have when we're tempted are not simply various paths of sin. That's not all that's available to us. God provides a way of escape, even if that means of escape is your death. Let us not be too hard on Abram. 
Because in this, we are reminded that the man of faith had a faith which is not very different from yours and mine. This is one of the wonderful things about the Scriptures. One of, one of the things that help to remind us of the truthfulness of the Scriptures is that the, that the heroes of the faith are presented not as these, these you know, sort of mythological characters, right? They're presented as, as human beings with warts and failings, just like you and me. Abram was a fallen man like us. He was learning how to follow the Lord. And aren't you glad that there isn't somebody writing all of your story out for generation after generation to read about as you learn how to follow the Lord? Abram has us reading about him learning how to follow the Lord. So as we evaluate this, I think we can see Abram saw the threat and we can also say that he was not wrong to fear these men. But from his perspective, there was seen to be no way of escape other than to follow through with his ruse. And perhaps he should have waited on the Lord. Perhaps he should have sought help from the Lord to solve this seemingly unsolvable problem. But even in his folly, as Abram rashly suggests that he and his wife conceal the truth, I want you to note as well, God protected Abram and Sarai, his wife. God protected them. Indeed, as Abram entered into Egypt, just, just as he had feared, it didn't take very long for Sarai to be noticed. Verse 14 again accentuates her beauty by saying that she was very beautiful. Now you should understand that the Bible normally doesn't give physical descriptions unless it's very important to the plot. It's very important to the plot here. It's clear that she was an exceedingly beautiful woman. And so as the men of Egypt take notice of her, it also didn't take very long for the powerful men to notice her, and so Pharaoh's princes see her and praise her beauty to Pharaoh. And what is it the powerful men want? They want what they want. This was, to be sure, the very thing which Abram feared the most. He hoped would not come to pass. But in God's good providence comes to pass. We have to remember God was good in all this too. This is all part of what God wanted to take place. Abram's hope had been to go down to Egypt, keep his head down, survive the famine, so he could return to the land which God had given him. Yep, just going to go down there. Just don't make, don't make a fuss. Keep Sarai out of the way, you know, know, out of the public eye, and everything is going to be okay. But in God's providence, even the governing authorities of Egypt observed him and Sarai. The great house, this is what what Pharaoh actually means, the great house. It's sort of the same way uh, you might refer to, um, you know, in uh, in Great Britain, the crown, right? This is the royal house. This This is the leader. This is the king. The great house notices Sarai. And of course, this situation is not accidental. God is so sovereign over all of these things. And sometimes you and I get into messes. Not like this, of course. But we make choices which lead us down a winding, meandering path to a place where it seems there's no way forward. Sometimes your worst fears actually come to pass, don't they? And it's in these moments which our faith is stretched. When you and I fear man, when we are anxious and we think 
He thinks things like, this is it. You know, this, this is the day the whole thing comes crashing down on me. This, I, this is the day I've feared my whole life, and here it is. What am I going to do? What we're doing in those moments is allowing our minds to begin to question, is God really on my side? Is God good? Does God truly love me? You and I need to keep the truth of the gospel in mind. If you're in Christ, then you're a child of the King. You are a blood-bought, adopted son of the Most High God. The Lord will rescue you. You don't need to rescue yourself. You might say, but I might take great loss. I might, I might lose money. I might lose prestige. I might lose income. I might lose my life. And perhaps you will. Perhaps you will. But remember, haven't you already been rescued in Christ? And keep in mind as well that God has provided you with a covenant community. Is not your church home a part of God's goodness and providence in your life? Learn to lean to the gifts which God has given to you. In the case of Abram and Sarai, they found themselves in quite a fix. And in order to get out of this mess, they were going to need direct divine intervention. God, we will see, protected Sarai from harm in ways in which really Abram had failed to protect her. And so since the crown had taken notice of Sarai, as it was thought that she was Abram's sister, she was taken into the great house, the house of Pharaoh. Now the verb taken here in the text is ambiguous. It doesn't necessarily mean sexual intercourse. She was taken into the house. That is to say, she was taken into the royal harem. And it appears that's really all, all that's happening. In fact, um, we would expect to see terms like uh, he lay with her or Pharaoh violated her. Those are terms we find in other parts of Scripture. We don't see these here. It just simply says she was taken into the house. And so it seems, although not, we're not 100% on this, but it seems that God protected Sarai from being molested by the king. She was brought into the harem, but that's as far as it went. In fact, the case for her protection is strengthened in the fact that the plagues which come upon the house of Pharaoh were immediately connected to Sarai. Her presence in the house brought distress on the house of Pharaoh. Now, this this should in no way minimize the fact that Sarai was put into a situation of great peril on account of Abram's misrepresentation of the truth. Nevertheless... God is true to his promises. Abram and Sarai would be the parents of a great nation. Even the foolish actions of men cannot thwart the power of Almighty God. And strangely enough, even as Sarai was in a great danger, and maybe some of the ladies are like, well, this is typical, right? Abram fared better for her sake. We read Pharaoh gave Abram sheep, oxen, donkey, camels, and even servants. 
So there's gifts that are given to Abram. Now these aren't bridal gifts. These, these are rather compensation for having taken Sarah. Again, who's assumed to be his sister. Abram had wanted Sarah, and we can presume also his servants as well, to conceal the truth so that it would go well with him, so that he would not die. And ironically enough, it does go well for him. It goes way better than he expected. In the process of losing Sarai, he was personally greatly enriched. This is actually rather incredible. But even as God protected Sarai and enriched Abram despite his sin of omission, God inflicted Pharaoh greatly. As suggested earlier, it may be the plagues themselves which served as Sarai's protection. It became very clear these plagues are because of her being in this house. Verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. I want you to note that the Lord was mindful of Sarai. Abram had not relied on the faithfulness of God in this matter, but the plagues themselves proved that the Lord was protecting Sarai, that the Lord was on her side. Wives, sometimes your husbands are going to put you into uncomfortable positions. Sometimes this is right. Sometimes it's because men act as fools. I love how the young men who aren't married are laughing. (laughs) Brothers, we act like fools sometimes, don't we? But know that even when your husband fails to be mindful of you, your Savior is with you. He has not forgotten you, nor has He forsaken you. God looked out for Sarai even as she was put into a a really perilous situation. And for Pharaoh and for Abram, each of them fared quite differently. Abram grew in wealth despite his folly. Pharaoh is plagued with many plagues. The Hebrew word used here for plague is the same which was used to describe the ten plagues in Exodus. It is also used to describe leprosy, which is why some translate this as diseases. Whatever the nature of these plagues are, it became clear to Pharaoh that it was Sarai who was at the root of all of them. She was the reason that this household was under attack. Thus the consequences of Abram's decision touched beyond himself, but impacted even the great house of Egypt. Even Pharaoh suffered because of his half-truth. Abram had been promised that he would bring blessing and life even to the nations, but here he brings curse and death to Egypt. It's worth noting, too, that there's a parallel with the Exodus as Pharaoh's house suffers because of the nation of Israel, the bride of God being in that land. But they leave greatly enriched, as Abram does. Really interesting. Now, it's not explained to us how Pharaoh discovers Abram's deceit. But when it becomes clear to Pharaoh who is to blame, he calls Abram. Look at verse 18. He says this, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? 
Why would you do this to me? Abram is interrogated with a slew of questions, but you'll note he doesn't give any response. At least there's none recorded for us. There's no response from him, but really there's none necessary. Abram was guilty for not telling the whole truth. And he had brought condemnation and curse into the king's house. And so Pharaoh returns Sarai back to Abram and he tells him, Go. Just go. Leave the country at once. Orders are given so that he would have safe conduct out of the kingdom. Abram was to depart from Egypt. And his departure wasn't left to him. He wasn't able to to come come and go as he wants. He was essentially thrown out of the country. Leave. Now one, one might also wonder, why would Pharaoh do this? Why, why give him all his stuff and send him on his way? Why not just kill Abram? Right? Why not just kill him? Pharaoh was angry. This is very clear from the text. Pharaoh was very angry. He took Abram's actions as a personal affront against him. But he also feared Abram, or rather... He feared Abram's God. If Pharaoh took action against Abram, and remember, he understands these plagues are from the God of Abram. If he, if he took action against Abram, perhaps greater curses, greater plagues would come upon him. And so the most expedient thing to do under the circumstances was to expel him from the country and to be done with him. Just, just go away. It's funny how even the unbeliever at times recognizes the power of God, though they continue to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But in the process of leaving, Abram leaves a much wealthier man than he came. It's really wonderful. Abram had gone down to Egypt because of the severe famine. He comes back up from Egypt severe in riches. Livestock, silver, and gold. He comes back with his wife and all that he has, and it's also mentioned which Lot comes back with him as well. Of course, Lot's going to play into the story in a little bit, as there's a disagreement between Lot and Abram, or, or rather their herdsmen. Abram not only escaped Egypt with his life, he left Egypt with all of his goods. In fact, an increase in his goods, his livestock, his money, his servants. This is amazing, really. God used the folly of Abram to accomplish his will and even to bless him. This is is incredible to consider and all glory belongs to God alone in this. The miseries of this life sometimes place us in situations where we seem stuck between a rock and a hard place. And often it is the choices that we make that got us there. We helped get ourselves there. Abram helped get himself where he was. The choices themselves may not have been bad. They may not have been sinful. And yet, here we are. Here we find ourselves. What, What do we do? And it is in these moments that we may begin to interrogate God. We might, like Pharaoh, ask Abram, What have you done to me? Are you really good? Do you really love me? Are your promises true? 
You and I are prone to wander off from the Great Shepherd in these sorts of moments, perhaps not into wholesale unbelief, but into functional unbelief. We begin to think, as Abram did, that we need to take the situation into our own hands. God's not going to help me, so I just need to help myself. Or perhaps, to put it another way, I know the principles of God's word would dictate that I should go this direction and do this thing, but that is not going to work. I've heard that before, talking to people. I know what God's word says, but that doesn't work. So I'm going to go do this other thing. That, that, if I do that, it's just going to make it worse. Well, you know what that's saying. It's saying God's a liar. And we do that sometimes, don't we? Like Abram, sometimes our faith is challenged. Sometimes we find ourselves in predicaments. But God is good to His children. And we can trust Him to resolve even the stickiest of predicaments. Maybe not to our own greatest personal satisfactions, but for our good. And in ways in which we can give Him glory. God has called us to trust in Christ, to trust in His Word, to follow after Him faithfully in all areas of our life. For He is the Lord of all things, even the smallest details of life. We should be willing to do what is right in accordance with His Word, even when it seems like a risk to ourselves. Even when we might take personal loss. But we also fail, and we will at times fail. And when we fall into sin, know that God has forgiven you in Christ. That He has already rescued you from the pit of destruction. That if you are trusting and resting on Him alone, in Matthew 6, Jesus said, Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of His life? Well, beloved congregation of Jesus Christ, know that God controls and knows the beginning from the end. He is sovereign over even the span of your life. And so your anxieties, your fears of the things of this world will gain you not even a single moment. We're not to be anxious. We don't save ourselves. We're to rest on our faithful, faithful Savior who already has saved us. Lord, you, you can trust in, in the Lord, can't you? Trust in Him, for He is good, and His steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, we thank You for this Word. We thank You that we can look to a man like Abram, Abraham, who was a man of great faith. And we will see as we continue to study Your Word in Genesis how He grows in His faith. Help us as well to grow in our faith. Help us to trust that Your steadfast love indeed does endure forever. That we are secure in Christ. That You love Your people. And that You lead us well. That You don't lead us into destruction. But You lead us to quiet waters. You lead us to rest. Help us, indeed, to rest in Christ, our Savior. And help us to give you glory in all things, even the difficulties of this life. We give you praise, glory, and honor 
Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.